This episode brought to you by Appeal, helping you to enjoy your fruits and vegetables at peak freshness and reduce food waste. Learn more at appeal.com, A-P-E-E-L.com. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from the Lower East Side of Manhattan, New York City. We got uh, Nastasia the Hammer Lopez from her undisclosed location in Southern California with the newly, uh, you know, the newly whatever reordered uh, stay-at-homes. How you doing there, Nastasia? Good. Yeah. Although she's not staying at home because she's moving, so she has no um, home. She's homeless you know, for like an hour. People don't need to know that. <laughs> now they do. Now they do. Uh, we got, uh, John coming from, uh, Lyme, Connecticut, uh, home of Lyme disease. It actually is named after Lyme, Connecticut. So that's not just an unfortunate kind of thing. And, uh, John, tell me if you know this story. Are you familiar with the, uh, company Deep River, uh, snacks? They make potato chips. Oh yeah. Great potato chips. Yeah. They are good actually. I enjoy them. Yeah, I do too. Uh, so the owner of Deep River, they actually, they're made in Lyme. Right. So yep. Deep River, Deep River is a town like across the river from uh, Lyme, across the river and like right across the Connecticut River from Lyme. And Lyme is a little bit hoity toity and Deep River like is not. You know what I mean? Like Deep River is like like that's where Gretchen Mall comes from, I think. It's old school, like, you know, kind of like nice little place. And the people just up north, Chester, which is where the artist Saul Lewitt lived and stuff like they like to look down on Deep River people. Anyway, I digress. So the reason it's called Deep River Snacks is because the guy who lives in Lyme that started the company is like, who wants to buy Lyme disease potato chips? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Not know that, but that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Uh, we got uh, Matt in his Heidi Hole uh, booth uh, in uh, Rhode Island. How's it going? Going all right. Going all right. We have an ad campaign here that I just saw the other day. I walked past this poster and I was like, have you tested negative for Lyme disease? You might still have Lyme disease. And I was like, let's <laughs> stop. That's great. That's great. Remember uh, back in the day, uh, I mean, like, you know, now obviously it's different. But back in the day, I, my, one of my favorite ads was um, there was for some sort of disinfectant like soap or spray. And, it, it you know. God knows in, you know, going forward, uh, what our collective immunities for other things are going to be like now that we've like lived in almost completely aseptic environments for the past nine months. Right. Because uh, didn't your parents ever used to tell you guys that you needed to like consume a certain amount of dirt and filth in order to build up your immunity? Do you remember this? Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And until recently, right, because of for obvious reasons, I've always been kind of against, you know, sterilizing every surface in my life because I'm like, I'd rather build up an immunity to like the small level of stuff that's around me. Anyway, so like there was a, I forget which cleaner it was, but they were like, it was like a husband wife and they were like, uh, honey, you remember that time like, uh, like two months ago when you were sick and you thought you had the flu? He's like, yeah. And she's like... Well, you know, maybe it was just a mild case of salmonella. We need to sterilize the whole freaking house. And then she like sprays this like like cleaner because they're trying to get you petrified of your kitchen at all times. So I feel like the Lyme disease is the same thing. It's like, hey, you had a bunch of tests that you don't have Lyme disease? You may still have you it. You still have it. Yeah. Although I have to say undiagnosed Lyme disease is really terrible. Like it's not something to mess around with. Like having spent a lot of time in Lyme disease central and gotten it. Uh, before, like, und- undiagnosed Lyme disease is no joke. But, 
But how are you supposed to diagnose it if you're negative? What do, what do they want you to do with this information? I, I stopped reading the poster at that point. So I didn't go down to the next small, like the, the font size smaller. So I don't actually know what I was supposed to do about it. Right. The what the what do I do with this information kind of. Situation. I was just like, God, and then I ran away. So. <laughs> <laughs> so so not only did the ad tick you off, but also it did not have its desired effect of you uh, of, of you like doing anything. Yeah, there's another there's another ad that uh, uh, Nastasi it went up after you left, so you haven't seen it. But John and I have seen it. Uh, it's like a, so the Manhattan Bridge goes from Brooklyn to uh, Williamsburg, and we, uh, sorry, from Brooklyn to um, Lower Manhattan. And when you go across it, there's this big ad, and it says, "If like if you hate racism, no, if if you like racism." Delete Uber. It's all this stuff, but it, it, in giant letters, it has the word racism and Uber. And the phrasing of it is too complicated to immediately understand. It wasn't like Uber hates racism, right? Or something like so blunt that like when you're driving in a car, you can understand what the heck they were saying, right? Instead, it's this complicated construction like if, then, if, then, racism, Uber. So I was like, Uber's racist? And then I was like, and then like only like the next three times when I saw it, was it like, oh, Uber's trying to say something against racism, bad ad. If I have to sit there and wonder whether your company is racist or not, what idiot sat by in a room was like, you know what, let's in an equal size font, let's just put the words racism and Uber right next to each other on a big billboard that people can only see as they're driving. What do you think, guys? Yeah, 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 let's do that. Seems like a good idea. Right? Anyway. Um, John, you remember? You've you seen that billboard, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, we were in the car together. It was terrible. Yeah. It was super confusing. Yeah, yeah, super confusing. Uh, all right. So uh, are any of you guys uh, are any of you guys familiar with the um, Korean uh, American food uh, person, uh, uh, Manchi? Anyone? Manchi? Yes. Anyone? She's got like 8 billion like YouTube followers. She has several cookbooks. Um, and actually, Nastasia, you're, you're going to like this. Guess what Mangchi, and I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. Guess what Mangchi translates to? Uh, I don't know. Uh, the hammer. Nice. Yeah, yeah. It means hammer in Korean. Anyway. Well, step so, off. Territory yeah. is taken. Well, you know, I feel like in a different language, you can do it. You know what I mean? I feel like it's... Anyway. Uh, so she's enormously popular. And uh, she had this recipe. So, I, like, I'm still on turkey leftovers because there's just not that many of us. And Trader Joe's turkey was, like, 20 pounds. So, like, you know, I still have turkey leftover. And uh, so I was like, okay, I'm going to make, like... I was going to do, like, a turkey pot pie. You guys like pot pie, right? Delicious. Yeah. I love pot pie. But here's my, this is a pot pie question. This is not what I'm here to talk about, but do you require that there be two crusts, even though the bottom crust is going to get soggy and make the leftovers not as good? Or are you okay with a one crust where the top crust is there and then you can just dig into it and serve it like out of a casserole dish? Thoughts? I'm okay with just a top crust. Nastasia? Yeah. You're okay? Mm-hmm. Did you ever eat chicken, Matt, or no? Is this just totally lost on you? Uh, this is pretty lost on me because I, even when I ate meat things, I just didn't really like chicken that much. What about pot pies though? All right. Well, for those of you that, I don't know, have never been a child in America before, 
a pot pie is like vegetables. You need to have your your peas, carrots, celery, right? And like a cream based, like like a light cream based gravy kind of a situation. And which, you know, if you're going to be a joker about it, you could use some sort of cream soup, right? And then typically hacked up chicken, but turkey delicious in, in pie format. Uh, and it's, it's one of the great things. It's one of the, uh, it's one of the great, like comfort foods, I think like ever it's delicious anyway. So I was like, I'm going to make a turkey pot pie. And Jen was like, my wife was like, yeah, awesome. I love pot pie. And then I remembered neither of my kids will eat the vegetable combination that's in a pot pie. I was like, I'm toast. They won't eat it. And then I just have to sit there getting more and more angry as only Jen and I are eating the pot pie. And I just, I was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I was like, fine. I will make a turkey soup completely devoid of vegetables and then just have the vegetables separately. So that's what I did. I made it like a light cream turkey soup. But then I was like, I still want some sort of dumpling thing. So I was going to do dumplings. But Dax had just made a second batch after Thanksgiving because he got it really into it of these Parker House rolls that were, you know, uh, my wife's mom's recipe. Anyway, long story. So I was like, eh, I have a lot of leftover potatoes because, of course, I bought too many potatoes. So I have all these leftover potatoes. I'm going to make potato dumplings. But I'm like, well, I'm not going to make gnocchi because my gnocchi are terrible. My gnocchi are terrible. Like I used to make really good gnocchi. I made it like once a week and then somehow I lost the knack. And then when I read people's instructions on the internet about how to get the knack back, I just never make ones that I like. Do either, do any of you guys make gnocchi that you like? No. John, do you, do you, you never tried? Matt, you never tried? Vegetarian who's never tried making gnocchi before? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. No excuse. Yeah, no excuse. Um, John, how's your gnocchi game? He's muted. He may be on a call or something. Oh, all right. We'll, we'll find uh, out. So dog, dog is barking. Oh, dog. Dogs. Um, dogs, right. Yeah. Uh, no, I have never made gnocchi. What the heck? I know. I should. I need to change that. Well, you know, if you would inspire us by telling us how to do it right, we would try it. But since you're just telling us you don't even know... That's not that I don't know. Is that I I feel like I feel like it's one of those things where like when you do it a lot and you have it, you have it, you have it, and then somehow you lose it and it doesn't come back for a while. Like I need to get it back somehow. Anyway, so I was like, I'm not going to do the gnocchi because no, to hell with it. So I came upon this concept, and the reason I made this is going back to uh, to uh, Mangchi. She makes this potato dumpling that does not seem plausible. I'm going to tell you what she does. And you can look, look, just look up potato dumpling. The actual name for it, which I'm going to butcher beyond belief, is gam, uh, gamja unksmi, right? Is the, these potato dumplings. But here's what she does. It contains, get this, only potato, which she starts fresh. She doesn't buy anything, right? Potatoes, regular russet Burbanks, uh, which, you know, for any of you listening outside of the United States is the standard U.S. mealy variety Idaho style potato that you, you buy. It's a standard baked potato potato. And what she does is she peels it. She takes one of those, uh, you know, those kind of like uh, daikon style graters with like the hexagonal holes with the like the little points that go up. You guys familiar with what I'm talking about? Is this making sense to you? Yeah. Yeah. So she's taking one of those kind of graters. She peels it and she just grates the potato like into like a cheesecloth situation, right? In water. And then grates the whole thing. And I looked at the grating under my microscope. They're like little fine threads is what the kind of grate. Because it looks like a paste, but what comes out is little fine threads if you look at it under a microscope. I have pictures. And then you, you rinse 
that potato stuff into a big bowl and you save the water and then you squeeze the hell out of it. So now you have like super dry, like potato, like strands. You set that aside and you let the water settle and the water turns disgusting, kind of purplish brown because of the enzymes. You decant all the water off and the starch is like a, a cake at the bottom of your bowl, just a potato starch. Now you take the, the shaved potato, you put it back on top of the starch with a little bit of salt and you knead it back into a dough and miraculously it turns into a dough. And then you roll it in balls between your hands and it holds, it holds together like a ball. It doesn't fall apart. And then you boil it in, in stock. She used an anchovy stock. I used, you know, turkey stock. You boil it and they stay whole and they turn chewy, almost like a rice cake. But the outside looks frilly, almost like a miniature version of a snowball, the coconut confection that, you know, you, you used to buy. And I was like, this is a miracle. But then no one in my family loved them. I was like, would you ever seek these out? And they're like, no, I would not seek these out. I was like, would you seek these out over a rice cake? And they're like, no, I would not seek them out over a rice cake. But still, look it up because it's one of those things that, you know, it's kind of miraculous that it works at all. Just a little bit of salt and a potato makes a texture unlike any potato texture I've ever had out of a standard russet Burbank. And it's not that complicated. But, you know, maybe someone who's made this recipe can tell me, like, the game changer of why, like, you know, how I'm going to get my family to love this. But I just thought it was kind of a miracle. Anyway. Um, Jim says this sounds like poutine rapé, which is an Acadian dish from the Maritimes, but generally gets stuffed with pork. I... Huh. I don't know. I will look that up. Do you have a, do you have the, like, text me after this or email me the, the spelling of it and I will look it up. I mean, you know, I think almost anything is better when stuffed with pork, but especially bitter melon. You guys like bitter melons? I mean, not you, Matt, but you guys like bitter melon stuffed with pork? Yeah, yeah I do. Yeah, bitter melon stuffed with pork is delicious. Um, all right, so speaking of pork, uh, Alex Goody wrote in uh, to Nastasia a long time ago, and I haven't answered it yet, hoping you can help me out with a plan I have on making better uh, chicharrones, uh, chicharrones. Uh, I'm sure that Alex has already tried this, but uh, we'll go for it anyway. I haven't tried this yet because I'm concerned it'll explode in the fryer. Oh my God, get this. The worst fryer experience I've ever had. And I've had many fryer experiences, mostly good, but some bad over the many years of dealing with a fryer was I, I improperly made a falafel recipe and it wasn't bound at all. You guys like falafel? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I improperly made a falafel recipe and it didn't have a, an adequate binder in it. And because I had a commercial fryer, 40 pounds, 40 pounds of oil commercial fryer, like I never used to worry about overloading it. So I put the almost the entire batch in like enough to cover the entire top layer of the oil, which is substantial. And the entire batch of falafel instantly disintegrated into a, like a layer, like a blanket of falafel on the top of the thing absorbed oil and sank to the bottom of my fryer. It was the worst frying nightmare, I think, of all time. The second was the, that wasn't a nightmare, but would have been the worst nightmare of all time, is uh, when Nastasia and I were with, I believe, uh, fabulous, Fabian Von Husky, and I forget, Piper probably, right? Was it Piper who was there with us? And we were testing lowering a turkey into a deep fryer and we dropped it. And had the fryer been on, we all would have died. Remember that? Yep. Yeah. Wait, die? Why would you have died? Just because it would have sprayed oil everywhere, or it, yeah, it would have sprayed oil everywhere. We all would. Have, we all would have been toast. And then our response was, 
because it was cold because we were running a dry, you know, a dry run. It was still oil, so it was still messy, but it was a dry run in the sense that it wasn't on. Um, we all just started laughing because we're all like, hey, 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 we, we're dead now. It was awesome, right, Stas? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, back to uh, Alex Goody's question here. I want to find a way to make relatively flat, uh, you know, uh, pork skins of consistent size. I plan to pressure cook and then grind the pork and or chicken skin and use transglutaminase to recombine it and form it into sheets and then fry. Which transglutaminase do I use? Uh, I have your guide. Transglutaminase is the enzyme that uh, glues proteins together. But it doesn't really go into something like this. I just assume GB. Uh, so GB is the greatest bond. The different transglutaminase... Well, I'll finish the question. Since I'm deep frying, but I imagine there are other considerations in the choice that I'm unaware of. I know that I'll have to mess with ratios of uh, different skins, thicknesses, et cetera, et cetera, but any advice uh, would be appreciated. Uh, also, just check uh, knowing it won't be horrible failure uh, is always appreciated. I don't think it'll be horrible failure. It might not work, but I don't think it'll be a horrible failure. Um, I have some model recipes that make this make sense for modernist cuisine. Um, they have a traditional chicharron where you pressure cook the skin and then dehydrate it and fry it. Uh, by the way, I don't know that pressure cooking the pork skins in the traditional recipe is necessary. Nastasi and I used to make them constantly, unfortunately. And they, you smell terrible when you're making, when you're, when you're cooking off pork skins and then scraping them because you have to scrape the fat off the back to get good kind of expansion. How bad do your hands smell, Nastasia? We mostly did beaver, which was gross. We yeah, we did. Well, we did a bunch of beaver flapper. That is true. But I just remember we used to, we couldn't do beaver flapper for big events because we never had that much of it. But do you remember when we got that whole, we would get whole cases of pork skin in and then we would be there with the interns, like scraping all of the stuff at all of the stations in the Italian kitchen. Like, because mm -hmm. we only had like an hour and a half. So I was like, get them in the, get them in the water. We'd have to boil them. When you boil them, when you're done boiling, what you're doing is you're converting all of the collagen to gelatin. Then when the collagen is turned into gelatin, there's a little bit of other proteins and connective tissue in there that don't uh, solubilize. And, but that's the only strength of the pork skin, right? So you have to let it cool completely before you even touch it because a pork skin that's th thoroughly cooked through won't even hold its own weight when you lift it. It'll just tear right? But when you let it cool off and the gelatin sets, it's strong enough to mess with. That's when you scrape off the back and that's when your hands start smelling like pork skin, which is just nasty. In the same way that like pork stock, John, give me some, give me some, drop me some knowledge on the pork stock. Uh, yeah, really unpleasant. Stinky, not, not fun. I had to make yeah. it when, back when I worked at the wrestling, we added pork shanks for the chicken stock. Um, but yeah, stinky. But why did you, do you think it made the stock better? I don't think so. She thought it added, I mean, I guess it does add more gelatin and body to the stock, but I don't know. I, I didn't see necessarily a purpose. I don't know. I'd rather just throw in more chicken feed or something like that. Or how about this, people? I don't know if you guys have thought of this before. You know what you can add to stock to give it more gelatin if you already like the flavor? Gelatin? Powdered gelatin? Gelatin! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you like the flavor of what you're working with, and want to add gelatin, how's about gelatin instead of stinky, stinky pork uh, bones? Because here's the thing, like other people are like, oh, well, what you do is, is you take the pork bones and then you put them in cold water and then you bring the water up just to the simmer and then you scrape all of the stink off, throw that water away and then make a real stock where you're just getting the gelatin out of the bones and not all that stinky pork stock flavor or just use gelatin. I'm just saying. Um, all right. 
Uh, and then uh, Chef Steps makes chicken noodles where they grind chicken and then glue it to form it into a sheet using Activa RM and then cut it into noodles and steam them. Uh, this, that, okay, so look, the, the transglutaminase noodle thing goes back to Wiley Dufresne, my brother-in-law, who one of his most famous WD recipes, WD50 recipes was um, shrimp noodles where he just mixed shrimp and transglutaminase and salt and then extruded it out of like one of those Japanese noodle press presses into water and the noodles would instantly set into noodles that could be uh, eaten like pasta. It was a great dish. It was a great idea. He was very mad that uh, uh, Ajinomoto, the company that makes um, Activa, which is the um, transglutaminase, that they had uh, basically stopped him from patenting any process because they had the way that they had organized their patents, they were very good at. So he couldn't get any intellectual property protection out of that kind of discovery, even though he really did do that. Um, his One of his second great things, and this is more uh, apropos of what you're asking here, Alex, is he also in, invented the vegetable sheet noodle where you use, uh, you actually take, like I said before, gelatin. So it's not going to matter much which Activa he uses. He was, I believe, using Activa TI which for the gelatin ones, which is straight. So the Activa RM, which is the old school standard one, is, is, uh, is gelatin, sorry, is milk protein, casein, plus enzyme, plus filler. Um, greatest bond, and the casein is the glue molecule that it's using to, to glue with, the, the helper glue. GB, the one that you mentioned, greatest bond, is uh, a mixture of gelatin and uh, enzyme and filler. Uh, Wiley used TI, which is just enzyme and filler, and then gelatin, because he's like, I'll add the amount of gelatin I want, thanks, which I think is a good idea. And the, what happens when you um, cross-link gelatin with um, uh, Activa is it becomes non-thermoreversible. So in other words, the gelatin won't melt anymore, assuming that you cross-link it enough and use a gelatin of high enough uh, polymerization. So what he did is he would take any sort of vegetable you want, mix it with uh, gelatin, add transglutaminase, sheet it into noodles, let it sit for over a day so it can fully uh, fully react. And then those noodles would be non-thermal reversible. He could make vegetable noodles that you could then boil in, in, in water and they wouldn't break apart. Now, um, you can do this and uh, you're going to have to test because the way that uh, pork brines work is is that the uh, hold on one second Sorry, uh, the dogs were locked in a room and then whenever they get unlocked from the room they run around with happiness Oh, yeah, um, I, I totally just muted John thinking that yeah, those were his not dogs. Me. Yeah. Thanks, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Anyways, so uh, Where was I so it, like the pork rinds um, work because gelatin that is dried becomes plastic again as it heats up. So do some tests. I think it'll probably work. Uh, Wiley said he thinks it'll probably work. I texted him. Uh, give it a shot. It's not probably, it's, you know, duh, do one or two strips before you uh, uh, put the whole thing in your fryer and falafel up the bottom of it like I did, uh, which is a nightmare. Uh, uh, long time. We've had this on the on the thing for a long time, and we haven't mentioned it. So I, I, I think we should I bring do it up. You also well, have Dax Arnold. On, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me one on second. Mark from Camloops. Mark from Camloops says, and Dax can weigh in on this. Dax, are you there? 
Yep. You muted him, Matt? You muted my own son? Yeah, I'm here, I'm here. Uh, all right, Dax, see what you think about this. Uh, Dax only cares about hip-hop, so I think this is more of a rock band name. But Mark from Kamloops says, uh, Persistent Pinking is a great name for a rock band. What do you guys think? College, college rock band, yeah. I mean. College rock band, <laughs> Persistent Pinking? I guess. Persistent pinking, of course, is the problem that uh, poultry and other meats have where they just won't turn gray as you cook them, no matter how high a heat you subject uh, them to, which is a, a nightmare for people that won't eat that meat. All right, now, Dax has a request for the Cooking Issues listeners. You know, Go for it, Dax. Yeah, okay. So my friends and I, we've been trying to find like regular Sprite Cranberry for the longest time, not the winter spice, but like the regular stuff. If anyone out there like knows how to get it, please direct towards my dad. Uh, I've been looking for it everywhere, and the only why do you care about this, Dex? I mean, I care about it because I remember in 2018 I was able to just get it so easily. I could just go to Target. My friends and I we loved it, and then after that, it just went scarce. Like you just couldn't find it anymore. I just want to have it again. Now, what's wrong with the winter spice cranberry sprite? I mean, nothing's wrong with it. It still tastes good, but like I I still want the original. It's endorsed by Dram, right? Yeah, and LeBron James. So these are two people. It's endorsed by LeBron James, but Dram just helped to make the song. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not, it's, it's, it's to you. It just doesn't bring back your, your childhood as, as much as <laughs> how do you know, how do you know that it even exists now? D- just for you think that Dax is lazy. Dax has done his Googling, right? It's not available here, right? I mean, it is, but I have to, I'd have to pick it up in Alabama and I have no means of getting there. That's not here. Alabama is not here, Dax. And how do you know that it's actually available in Alabama? Did you call the store in Alabama and say, are you sure you have this? Or have you not updated your stock list from 2018? Yeah, no, I've been calling stores, checking stocks. You called a store in Alabama? Yeah, because I thought they would deliver, but they don't. How are they going to (laughs) deliver? I don't know. I might be making a rundown close to Alabama, meeting up with a brother-in-law from Alabama for the right price. I will get you some of this, but it's going to be. Say less. Oh, all right. But why would they only sell it in Alabama, Dax? If they're going to make I, it at all, why would they only sell it in, in Alabama? I don't know. That was just one of the stores that I saw. And what spice do you add to cranberry to make it into win- – what's a winter spice? I, I, I don't know. I Have you called you. every store between here and Alabama? I mean, like, I've checked a bunch of stores within, like, 10-mile radius. Mm, bike, bike radius. So here's another thing. <laughs> Dax, by the way, I've t- mentioned this on the show. Dax is a soda smuggler. Do you guys know this? Soda smuggler. Okay. No. Yeah. So Dax, there's a there's a vape shop that, aside from vaping, which you know I do not endorse, uh, they also deal in international sodas. And so uh, Dax has purchased some limited edition sodas from them for exorbitant amounts of money. But then when we were in Belgium right before the pandemic, he noticed a rare soda. Which one was it, Dax? It's like Fanta Exotic. That's what it's Fanta called. Exotic. Yeah. And so he bought like 30 pounds, like, <laughs> you know, like however many two liter bottles, like 30 pounds of Fanta Exotic and stuffed his suitcase with it and brought it, you know, whatever the weight limit was, that's how much, you know, Fanta Exotic he brought back into the country. And what did you do, Dax? I sold it to him. Yeah, he sold it. He's a he, like like Dax is a legitimate rare soda dealer. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all right, all right. So uh, you guys have heard his request. If anyone 
has the hookup and knows how Dax can get. But don't don't come in here with your winter spice sprites, cranberry <laughs> sprites. That is that is what a Joker would do. I'm telling you right now, Dax has already had the winter sp- uh, spice sprite. I still have some in my possession, <laughs> and, and he's fine with it. He's not hating. If, if if anyone hears this who is involved with winter winter spice cranberry <laughs> sprite, he's not against you. He just wants some OG. Am I right about this, Dax? That that is exactly correct. Mm. <laughs> All you right, any, thank you. Do you have anything else before you sign off? Or are you good? By the way, uh, Dax told his teachers because he's theoretically in quote unquote. Well, I'm not in class now. right now. I'm not in class right now. I got oh, out. Yeah? You didn't yeah. have to. Lo- I mean, you got no. out by saying you needed to go to the restroom. No, I didn't have to. Hey, for those of you that don't like have access to kids, what percentage of the kids in quote unquote online school now? actually just turn off their cameras and their microphones and do whatever they want during their class sessions. I would assume all of them, but I don't know. I'm not around. I mean, but seriously, Dax, give me a number. What percentage? I mean, I, I don't know. Like, the, I, I don't know who's doing what behind the camera. So, so they're not there. <laughs> oh, so you uh, think that some of them have turned their camera off, muted themselves, and are diligently studying <laughs> what the teacher is saying? I can tell you what percentage are doing that. Uh, yeah, anyway, Touché. that's a little, little, insight, little insight into the state of our schools, people. Well, thanks, Dax, for that, uh, that plea for Sprite. Thank you. All right. All right. All right. Bye, guys. Uh, Bye. And, uh, oh, Nastasia doing the Booker goodbye. I love it. Only Nastasia and I know. Give me the Booker goodbye again, Stas. I can't because it's not. I can't not do it. Because you can't hang up. Okay, let me. <laughs> so Nastasia said that she has to leave hard at one because she has to go do stuff, right? So when you when it comes time for you to leave, she's gonna do the, it to do the yeah. Booker goodbye <laughs> so that everyone can get the Booker goodbye. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't forget. I will not. All right. All right. This episode brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean that we're throwing less food away, it also means we throw away less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system, from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us to conserve our precious resources to ensure that we have fresh food to meet our growing needs. Appeal, food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. Okay, Joe Thompson wrote in about uh, rye bread because uh, he worked on uh, Adam Leonti's uh, recipe for rye bread. That was uh, a while ago. Listen, Joe, we understand this. We have we have given this question to Adam, right? So when Adam gets back to us, I will tell you the answer to your to what he says about your rye did bread. Did you text uh, him, babe? I texted him, but I did the lazy person's text, which is I literally took a picture of my email that uh, had uh, Joe's question about rye bread in it and texted him the picture. So when you look at it, it looks like a dot matrix printer. You know how pictures of, of monitors look like weird little squares? And, you know what I'm talking about? 
mm-hmm. because of the aliasing effect. Yeah. Uh, all right. Did, did you text him? Like, do you passive aggressively text him a picture of you having already forwarded him, or like the email that you sent him? I, I would appreciate. I didn't send him an email. I think Nastasia sent him an email. Okay. Yeah, but you didn't ask any question under the photo. You just sent the photo with no context. No. I okay. Okay. Here's just so you guys can judge or not judge. This is what I said. This is how I write texts. Howdy, Dave Arnold here. I hope you are well. That's my standard. Then I said, I had a question from a listener on your rye recipe. Thought I'd go to the source. Sorry, so last minute. So I sent it today and I texted him a picture of the question. Is that an acceptable way to do this? I'd say he's not going to get back to you. Like ever? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, so I did a little more research uh, on a question um, that came in a while ago. So let's, uh, and I think I have an answer for you. Lisa Somerville uh, wrote in, uh, and remember, we said this before, but she is 43, female, married, and buys any gadget she wants, uh, and both for uh, the home and for the bakery that she owns with her husband. Um, anyway, so um, what she said was is that she had a student uh, who used to tell her about a German bakery where she used to work that made their own quote-unquote vanilla flavor by combining prune juice and vodka. I'd never heard of this, so I tried it. Equal parts prune juice and vodka. At first it was terrible, but after letting the mixture sit at room temperature for a week or two, it tasted surprisingly like vanilla. My question is, why does this work? I'm also curious about the history of this, but I'm guessing it comes from a time when vanilla beans couldn't be transported because of wartime. Any insight on this would be appreciated. Uh, thanks. I uh, love the show, Lisa. All right, I did a little more digging. And there is nothing, nothing that I was able to find on there being actual vanillin in prune juice. Now, what I did find was W. Dennis wrote an article in the Journal of Industrial and Engineering Chemistry in April 1911, saying, the detection of prune juice and caramel in vanilla flavoring extracts. And then it said, the four, this is from 19, actually 1910, October 12th, 1910. I guess it was published in April 11th. The foreign coloring materials mostly, most frequently used in the preparation of factitious vanilla flavoring extracts are caramel, comma, prune juice, comma, and coke tar dyes. Um, and so, and they are, it was more difficult to uh, do detection tests for prune juice than uh, caramel coloring. Uh, so anyway, uh, I think that this practice started... Um, as a way to make fake vanilla look more, uh, by the way, fake vanilla is all based on vanillin. And vanillin was one of the very first isolated uh, organic flavor molecules. And also one of the first ones to be synthesized uh, in the laboratory. And it played a huge role in the development of the flavor industry. In fact, it was one of the main pillars of the flavor exhibit that the Museum of Food and Drink did way back, way back in the day. Uh, and it was actually a German, going back to Germany, in the, um, in the 1870s that had the first factory that was producing artificial vanilla, make, uh, vanillin, producing vanillin to make artificial uh, vanilla. It, at the beginning, it was quite expensive, but by the time this century rolled, rolled around, by the mid-20, well, last century, sorry, my, my century, the, the, the 1900s, um, when uh, in the 20s and 30s, they figured out how to make it out of uh, lignin, which is basically pulp. Uh, and it became fantastically cheaper. But 
early, I think people were using prune juice and other things with a little bit of vanillin to make a closer fake vanilla than just a clear, um, a clear vanillin would be. Uh, so I don't, I think it's probably maybe reminiscent of it from a color thing, but I couldn't find any actual chemical, uh, overlap. Um, also interesting, uh, did you know, and I did not know this, that prune juice is a common additive in tobacco for smoking because it adds sweetness and it has a, a couple of other things, but it harshes the, it, it harshes it. And some cigarettes are up to a half of a percent. The tobacco is up to a half a percent of, uh, of prune juice. Did, did you, were you aware of this? I was not. No. And also uh, on uh, prune juice as being the uh, laxative extraordinaire for uh, for the old geezer community, uh, which I'm rapidly approaching, at the Sunsweet Corporation uh, says that it is not just the high fiber in prune juice that that gets your motor running, uh, it, but it contains more sorbitol, which is a, a laxative in large ingredients than most other fruit juices. So there is the uh, poopifactive uh, element of the uh, prune juice for you. So that's a little bonus you're getting in your prune juice research today. You like that little bonus? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, now listen. Michael Vahabi wrote in about uh, Panatone. Now, we'll have this discussion now. Nastasia, you don't like Panatone, right? Is that one of the things you don't like? I do. I like it. Oh, who do I know that doesn't like it then? I know someone in my family or like close friend doesn't like it. Now I got to figure out who it is. I just assumed it was my biscuit hating friend, Nastasia, but huh. All right then. Well, so John was proposing, who are you proposing trying to get on, John? Um, that guy Roy from Penatone by Roy, who apparently makes excellent Penatones. Yeah. So should we, should we save it? So the question was on, um, for, for the Panatone, they make a very stiff starter called a pasta madre. And there's lots of things about, do you have to wrap it in this and boo-boo and boo-bee? So maybe we should just hold this off and, and, you know, in case we get them on, we can, we can ask them, no? Yeah. All right. If that's what we want to do, um, yeah. Nastasia, what is your, was it Matt that doesn't like it? No. No. Matt, Matt doesn't care. What are your guys' thoughts on... Uh, using it in a French toast uh, style of situation. Good. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It it's so it's, you don't find it to be gilding the lily. No. Yeah, no. What about, what about brioche French toast? Highly in favor. Huh. What about actual old school French toast like pan perdu style, where it's like started out as like a stiffer, more rustic bread. You let it actually freaking stale, and then it's you have to soak it up with like a, a lot of liquid because it, the bread is actually kind of gone into into its zone. Any of you guys like that style of French toast? It's a much firmer French toast. I just did that last week. Did but, but would you prefer the softer, more kind of uh, you know uh, like the brioche slash where, where there's already yeah, like yeah, a bullet? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean that would be that would be nice, but no, I like having the option to to make use of the stale bread via the the old school way of doing this. I wonder what percentage of French toast that is made uses stale bread. Roughly zero, like not zero, but like very small amount, right? I think most people yeah. make French toast with bread that you could actually eat right now and be happy with. I think so, especially because what percentage of French toast is eaten in restaurants? <laughs> Probably mm. a very high percentage. Like diner style restaurants. Yeah, yeah. 
you know what I tried to emulate once? And I think I've mentioned it on the show. And all of you guys, I think, would have just missed this. Uh, well, Nastasia would have just missed it. You guys would have missed it by a lot. But there used to be a restaurant called the Royal Canadian Pancake House where Sylvester Stallone went, I've mentioned this, to bulk up for Copland. And their whole shtick uh, was, you know, giant size things. And they used to take, I think it was like a whole holla or some sort of like egg heavy, could have been like, could have been a brioche, but it was a whole loaf of bread. And they somehow sliced it so that it opened up almost like a blooming onion. And then they soaked it. And then they developed a deep fry basket where they just put the entire loaf into the deep fryer at once and deep fried it to make this like ridiculous, like absurd, really, when you think about it, French toast. I have to say, was not bad. And then I tried recreating it once, I was unable. So if any of you have the recipe for the Royal Canadian Pancake House whole deep fried French toast, because it was never important enough for me to run through all of the tests it would take to actually recreate it. But that sounds like kind of a fun party trick once more than three people are allowed to get in the same room again together, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, all right. Uh, Stephen Bass wrote in via email, could you please share the spec for the corn star from the old Booker and Dax? Corn star with a C, corn, uh, was uh, a recipe by Austin Henley, who is now, he's still at Major Domo, right? Is Major, Major Domo reopened? Everything's closed now again in LA, but um, uh, anyway, from Austin Henley. And the recipe was, first you had to make uh, corn-infused rye. And for that recipe, he used Knob Creek rye, and it was a, a 750 of Knob Creek, and then 150 grams of freeze-dried corn powder. Uh, we got it from Milk Bar, because I think they used to use that in their corn cookies, right? Uh, but I think you could probably just crush up uh, freeze-dried corn. Uh, then he ISI'd it for two minutes, uh, you, know, you know, my rapid infusion technique, probably with two chargers in a liter bottle, and then strained it and, and pressed it and then put it in a centrifuge to get rid of the solids. So that was a pain in the butt to make. And then once you made that, it was that, then a half ounce of lemon juice and a quarter ounce of JM cane, which is an expensive cane syrup. But JM cane is a lot thinner than Steen's, which is the corn syrup I've been using uh, at the house, which is delicious. So you'd have to adjust the recipe a little bit because uh, Steen's won't jigger but uh, J.M. Kane probably will. 11 dashes of black pepper bitters. I think they used a simplified liquid intelligence recipe. So my recipe for black pepper bitters uses cubebs, grains of paradise, and several different kinds of black pepper. Cubebs, underused. Love cubebs. I uh, also love the word. Stas, what do you think of the word cubebs? Cube. Yeah, right? It's got two Bs in it. With it. How often do you get words like that? Cubebs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they simplified it to just use black peppers because no one wanted to go buy all the stuff. And uh, four drops of saline, a saline solution. That's twenty percent saline solution. Shake it on a shake it on a on a big old rock. Pour it over a fresh big old rock and serve it with a snack. No, no, it was served in a coop. And uh, put snack mix on the side. I have to say uh, that drink made it on the menu because Austin decided. Everyone always decided whenever we would have these kind of meetings. This is both at existing conditions, even at the French culinary with the interns. Anytime I would say, I hate something, someone would be like, that's the thing I'm going to make for you and make you like it. Stas, true or false? Everyone always does this with me. No, because if everyone did that to you, you'd have a lot more things. That everyone's scared of you. So the people that actually do it, that make it through, are, are lower than you think. You mean the number of them? Yep. Anyway, so I say, like, I don't like 
Corn drinks. I've tried making corn drinks. Nastasi and I have made several disgusting corn drinks, true or false? Yeah. Yeah. Because we had to, because we were forced to, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and so at one of these meetings, I was like, listen, because everyone's always like, what about corn in a drink? And I'm like, I was like, you could try every single one that I've had. I've hated and I've tried it. You know, I've tried corn juice. I've tried corn blah, 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 blah. And, um, and so like, you know, through dogged persistence, like he got this one that made it on the menu, but it was still something I would never order. But apparently, uh, Stephen, you ordered it, had it, liked it, and want the recipe. So there it is. There you have it. Um, and by the way, when you're working on a menu, I think it's a good idea to 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 let multiple. You need to discern whether something is just something you don't like or whether it's bad and it's hard. Which is why you should always take input from everyone around you and have multiple people tasting because there's plenty of stuff that i don't like that is uh is good right anyway uh okay uh brandon wrote in a sorry styles you're gonna have to earmuff because it's a, a a bread baking question question for you on bread baking in my research on the science of bread baking i found detailed breakdowns of the impact of almost every variable on the final loaf except for one the temperature of the dough when it goes into the oven Assuming you are following traditional preheated oven and preheated Dutch oven technique as opposed to cold oven and uh, cold Dutch oven, um, which by the way, okay, I'm not going to get into that. It would, I would have to spend all time just talking about that, so I won't even talk about that. Uh, how does the temperature of the dough impact oven spring? Milk Street's pizza recipe started uh, my hunt for this information as they call for putting the dough in a bowl and floating the bowl in hot water until it reaches 75 degrees. Uh, the warming step causes uh, a lot more rise in air bubbles versus uh, um, dough straight from the fridge or sitting sitting at room temp. Well, I guess it depends on your room temp, right? Uh, I make a focaccia-like flatbread regularly and find that dough temp makes a big difference on the rise in crumb texture. Shaping the dough on a sheet pan and floating it uh, on hot water for 30 minutes um, results in a fantastic rise in crumb regardless of proof level. Um, well, I'm wondering whether or not you're getting a, I'm wondering whether or not you're getting a differential, right? Because you're lowering the bottom surface of it. So you're reactivating the yeast that's at the bottom, but not at the top. And so you're starting to expand the air bubbles in the bottom faster than you are on the top, which is maybe creating kind of the structure that you want. I mean, clearly like all the research points to the, to the fact that, um, the bubbles that are in the, any bread that you make are actually there from the kneading and folding, and they've been expanded by the gas that's coming off of the yeast, but that the yeast, it's not possible for the yeast to actually initiate its own kind of, um, its own kind of air pocket, which is why even in your no need, uh, right, you're making that shaggy dough that's getting some air in it. And there's always one or two folds and flop doodles of it to try to get some air into it. And then even so, because of the high hydration, but also because of that kind of lack of kneading, you're getting these big old uh, air bubbles. So my guess is that if there is a differential effect and have someone chime in or tell me I'm wrong or send us some information so I can talk about it more uh, next week, um, but my guess is that if there is an effect, you're getting an effect by differentially heating the bottom versus the top and just uh, stratifying where the yeast is reactivating first. I don't, is that a good enough answer? Was that within your... We, we, we went off the uh, ding, Stas. We want to go back on the ding someday? I mean, yeah, but sure. It worked. We only tried it once, right? Yeah. You liked it, didn't you? I liked it, but it's it's a lot of work. But yeah, we can do it. I mean, if you, look, if you don't think it's worth it, don't do it. If you like it, do it. It's up to you. Uh, 
Patrick wrote in, spins all question. Have you ever had the clear, did I, did I talk about this already? Have you ever had the clear dirty martini at the new Hemingway bar at the Paris Ritz? No, I've not been to the new Paris Ritz. Anyway, uh, it's a clear liquid and they put a, I mean, I wish. I love Paris. You guys, I mean, I know John likes freaking Paris. What about you, Stas? Are you a Paris fan or not a fan? Yes. Why do you say it like that? Jeez. <laughs> because, because Who is not? You're not a fan of a lot of things that people really like. I I could see you not liking Paris just because everybody loves Paris so much, out of all proportion to what they should love it. That's all. I'm just asking. (laughs) God. Um, It is a clear liquid, and they put a clear ice cube at the bottom with an olive inside of the clear ice cube, but it tastes dirty, the martini now. Tastes dirty despite being clear. Even when the ice cube melts, do you think they are using clarified olive juice for that ice cube? I doubt it uh, because um, the dirtiness, aside from any flavors, is uh, salt uh, and other things. And you can't freeze that stuff into uh, into the you know into it. It would make it not clear and it would get frozen out. So you can you can have an inclusion like a whole olive, right, and then freeze clear ice around it. But you can't have a, you can't have something clear that has like a lot of flavor in the actual clear part of the ice. Now, that's my guess. Uh, someone could tell me that I'm wrong and they've done it, in which case I will update my answer, but that's my guess. My guess is, is that it is tasting less dirty as it melts until you get to the olive, which might be surrounded by a portion of brine where it will then re-dirty it. Just a guess. Um, Holden Trout uh, gave a good technique via email. Um few things to pass along. On one of the last episodes, uh, Dave mentioned his experiments with the silicone stasher bags, uh, which are, by the way, they're those uh, silicone kind of Ziploc bags uh, that, that I th- the thing that I think is interesting about them is that um, they can be retorted and even oven, so you don't have to worry about throwing them into boiling water. And in fact, in my freezer right now, I have leftover stuffing in two stasher bags that I use this uh, technique on. Uh, because don't you hate when you take a Ziploc bag out of the freezer and you throw it into hot water and the hot water gets a little too hot and the bag loses its integrity or it touches the bottom of the pan or the side and melts out and then liquid gets in when you're reheating? Does this happen to anyone but me? Just me. Uh, okay. Uh, and, and so so Holden wrote in and said, you know, how I said I wasn't able to get uh, all the air out the way that I do with uh, Ziploc bags and a bag of water. And uh, he has this technique uh, when he points us to a YouTube where they do it, where uh, you put the stasher bag inside of a, like a manual vacuum bag, and then you suck a vacuum on that and you can then suck it in and it does work quite well. Be careful when you do it though, don't seal the stasher bag before you put it in or the air inside the stasher bag will inflate reopen the seal of the stasher bag, possibly with consequential amounts of spilling out of the one stasher bag into your vacuum bag. I'm not going to tell you how I know that. Uh, also, recently heard, this is uh, Holden Trout again, recently heard the episode uh, where I was talking about the River Cottage cookbook as a classic in the field and wanted to let us know that when they published the American edition of the book, they took out the, my favorite part of the book, which is the cute farm animals with the butchery diagrams drawn over them. Shame on you, American publisher. Shame on you. Um, all right. Uh, Lachlan Bissett wrote in, uh, from Australia 
and saw some, uh, on Kickstarter uh, something called IXON, which is a preservative-free meat you can store at room temperature and wondered what my opinion of it was. So they have this thing that they call advanced sous vide aseptic packaging, and you know it's a product that is commercially sterile, i.e. it doesn't require refrigeration, meats in vacuum bags. Um, I'm interested in it, um, Lachlan, but the problem is that nowhere on the site do they tell you how they do it. Nowhere do they tell you kind of like something like a food preservation technology. Like I want to see, I want to see what they're doing. So I think the problem is that they probably don't have enough protection on the process to be able to tell you exactly why they, how they do it. And in the absence of that, I can't say whether I think it's great, right? So it could be like, it's probably based on some sort of multiple hurdle technology. So some level of salt, some level of heat pasteurization, perhaps with, um, irradiation, perhaps with UV, perhaps with high pressure, who knows, uh, right? So like one thing that's possible is, is that they could have um, super high pressure, like pressure that's enough to uh, sterilize something in without using any heat, typically is high enough to also degrade meat texture, which is why you don't see it very often on things other than like oysters and whatnot. But um, but maybe like through multiple hurdle technology, they can do a lower pressure with a, and like a cook, but they don't tell you what they're doing. So irritating. Uh, Jared is gold wrote in via Instagram. Quick question. Uh, what do you think is a good temp to a good temperature to low temp half a chicken with the backbone uh, with, with cut in half with the backbone in? I'd be aware of the backbone, you low temp, just like I say, like a, Talking about persistent pinking, stuff coming out of the backbone can cause some persistent pinking. Trying to have a nicely cooked leg and thigh without a fibrosis breast, a fibery breast. Uh, thanks, love the show. Um, all right, so the breast is going to be taste cooked but look translucent. Some people can tolerate translucent looking breasts and thigh meat. Most of us can't. So if you can tolerate it, just be aware that other people can't, and so cook it a little higher. Uh, 63 is the minimum temperature on breasts. However, 64.5 or so is the lowest temperature on thigh. But in reality, I would say probably 65 is safe to get it up within a reasonable uh, amount of time. I would still at 65 salt the breast beforehand to try to um, you know increase its water holding capacity at that um, temperature. But I, I I typically do it at like 65. If I'm doing something big, I'll even do 66. Anything much over that, and you're going to start having uh, problems. But hit, these are all in Celsius, by the way. Um, Colin Hughes wrote in via Instagram. Hey, I have a question. What do you think of ceramic slash pottery mixing glasses? I'd guess that they have a super high thermal mass and would make drinks uh, inconsistent. Can you add any ins uh, insights into that? Thanks. Uh, yeah, that's exactly correct. Uh, however, you can use it if you want, but you have to pre-chill it all the time. And so the way to do that is to always store your mixing glass full of uh, ice and water. Uh, and so when everyone at the bar decided that they didn't like stirring in tins anymore and they wanted to stir in fancy Uri looking glasses, I said, that's fine. But if I ever see you uh, not having a pre-chilled Uri glass you mix in, then I'll yell at you and take your head off. And I'll point to this very moment where we've had this conversation where you said that you would be religious about doing that. And I will tell you what a liar you are. And I didn't actually do that to them during service, but I will say that during service, occasionally uh, I would see it happening. Um, but just be aware that it will affect it. And so uh, in certain drinks, actually, if you're, if you're working in a bar, right, then you have to make it consistent. So I would make sure that they're always pre-chilled, always. Just keep ice and water in them all the time. 
uh, at home, uh, there are certain drinks that actually want more dilution. So drinks where you know you have to stir longer, well, might as well, instead of stirring it longer, uh, I mean, if you stirring it longer will make it colder as well. But if that's not a benefit in a particular drink, because it's not always a benefit, then um, just use one that's not pre-chilled. I mean, it's, it's going to be a drink-by-drink drink basis. But from a consistency standpoint, uh, you are correct. Um, Thomas wrote in, uh, I'm having exhaust fan issues in my rental kitchen. The exhaust fan is clearly not powerful enough for any real cooking. Are there any solutions to this problem? Uh, are, anyone, are any home kitchen fans good? No, because uh, with my experience, they all seem to be crap. Your experience has also been my experience, Thomas. Uh, thanks for your time. Warm regards, Thomas. Um, I mean, look, the, 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 the best thing you're going to get out of most situations is the box fan in uh, your window. If you're a little bit handy, um, what I would do is for the kitchen window, it's ugly, so you know, be aware, is uh, if you really can't afford to do good work, get a piece of wood, buy uh, fans, the, the circular fans that are meant to be mounted into holes that you cut, Cut the hole, try to do a nice job, route it out if you can, right? And then bolt two fans in, right? Side by side that, ba- that take up basically the whole width of your window. And you'll see this a lot in kind of illegal, uh, illegal venting down near where I live, down here in lower Manhattan. And then uh, lower the top window, not the bottom one, the top window. Because remember, all this hot stuff that you want to evacuate accumulates high and then rolls down. So put it up high, right, across the entire window, and then screw it into the window uh, so they can't pop out. And that's going to be, and you can put a speed control on the board that you have there and then run a wire to it. And that's going to be the best bet for a rental because it doesn't actually do any modification. doesn't require you to modify the wall. No landlord is going to see one little screw hole on the side of your window jam, and that's, that's, that's what I would do. But it can look really ugly. Most of the people that do it use real crappy uh, CDX plywood, and so it looks very provisional. You guys have all seen this uh, walking around Manhattan, right, this style event? Yep. Looks garbage, but you can make it look better. I mean, I don't know how much the looks is important. I don't know whether you can see the kitchen from all over the rest of the apartment or not. Uh, All right. Uh, And remember, never call it uh, a hood or a vent because the reason those – once you put cooking exhaust into a pipe, you then have to worry about fire right? Because the the stuff that builds up in the pipe can catch fire and cause a real bad kind of uh, fire effect, fire shooting out. Um, So be aware. Uh, Zachary Stewart wrote in uh, via email, in college, I learned the trick for bad coffee or bad beer was to put a shake of salt in it. In college, there was no such thing. I love how like, you know, I'm glad that people are much uh, fancier now in college. There was no such thing as bad beer in college. There was only beer we couldn't afford. The best beer in college was free beer. You guys familiar with this? Yes. Yeah. 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 My favorite beer in college was whatever was free. Um, right? I mean, and, and even like liquor, the best liquor for a while was free because we had no money. Uh, but anyway. Uh, I'm glad that people are beyond that now because as soon as you can afford to not drink complete swill, you should. I'm not saying you should spend scads of money. Anyway, uh, I learned that the trick for bad coffee or bad beer was to put a shake of salt in it. Despite the hundreds of hours of coffee talk from Dave, I've never heard of him talk about putting salt in. So salt and coffee, sometimes, always, or never. Zach from Pittsburgh, P.S. In real life, I'm not a yinzer. All right, listen. That's a good point. 
I'm surprised I've never mentioned it. Uh, I do not put salt in my espressos. Maybe I should try it. But I do add a pinch of salt um, when I'm adding the sugar to my wife's lattes. So when I'm doing milk in coffee, I will add uh, goodbye. a small... Oh, that's the Booker goodbye, people. <laughs> that's the Booker goodbye. Strong. I mean, I'll talk to her about it later when she's done. That's, that's strong. That's how it works. You could be in the middle of a sentence and Booker will give you the Booker goodbye. Just like that. Very wow. polite, happy. Yeah. He's glad he's glad he's spoken to you. Uh-huh. He's not at all upset. And he's, and he's gone. hanging up now. <laughs> and he's gone. Goodbye. Um, so yeah, so I put it basically in coffee with milk. But John, have you ever put coffee, uh, salt into coffee that doesn't have milk? No, I guess not. No. I've tried putting the salt into coffee with milk and I didn't really notice a difference, but I guess the fat Do you try it before and after? No. Mm, that's no. the trick. Yeah. I haven't tried it because I don't like coffee with milk, so I'm a bad judge. Uh, I just do it because it's just kind of instinct for me to do it. But for someone who has tested it, let us know. I've never tried it with beer. You ever tried it with beer? No, I've never heard about that with beer. Actually. I've never heard anyone say that with beer, yeah. I mean, the problem with adding salt to beer is that it foams like a weasel, right? Because you're throwing nucleation sites into your beer. So... Um, Back, but, but back at the at the bar at the end of the night when we were having our shift to Kate's, um, I would uh, invariably pour in clary lime and uh, saline solution though, and that's great. Clarified lime and saline topping off at Tecate is good. I would mm. prefer it to have been a Negro Modelo, but we didn't stock that. We had Tecate. Yeah. What's your what, what are your favorite cheap Mexican beers? I always I would... go. I was always served Tecate, but we also my favorite kid post shift drink was uh, Miller High Life, one of the restaurants Ooh. that always had that for us. The champagne of beers, huh? Indeed, yep. Yeah. So yeah, I think if they were all lined up, I'd go Negro Modelo. Although because of college experiences, I have like a very fond soft spot for my memory of Dos Equis. Really, I haven't, I haven't had one in years, so that tells you something right there. For but. those of you, for those of you that have like never seen Matt, he kind of looks like a young, like longer-haired version of the Dos Equis guy. <laughs> like if you had his facial hair, you could be the Dos Equis guy when you're older, dude. I'll I'll look into that. I don't know about that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, at towards the end of existing conditions, we we used to, you know, the Miller Pony was what we always garnished the Corsair was one of my favorite drink that I would get there, uh, and uh, which is the preserved lemon drink, preserved lemon, tequila, uh, lime, and a little bit of sugar and some spice. And uh, towards the end, we couldn't get the Miller Ponies anymore, uh, and so they had the. Modelo ponies, which were amazing, but they were the uh, Especialito ones, uh, and I prefer Negro Modelo to the, the to this special one. You? Uh, yeah, I would just do Negro Modelo. Yeah, Negro Modelo. Yeah, yeah. Um, Wait, what? What is the Corsair recipe? Because I have preserved lemons in the fridge, and I love tequila. Do you have a centrifuge? Oh God! All right, next. Yeah. Uh. That's a good John. Did you? you of course, there wasn't your drink, but like it's a good drink. Yeah, very good drink. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like super salty and not. It's like I don't know. I like it. Um, Jason Thomas wrote in via Instagram. 
I was hoping for a recommendation for a book on garde manger work. I'm a home cook and uh, know that I'm not being resourceful enough at maximizing scraps and leftovers. Uh, love the show. So, I mean, most of the garde manger books that I have uh, or that I have had aren't really about kind of what you would do with for a garde manger in like a normal restaurant kitchen. It's more about kind of like fancy hotel buffet style garde manger stuff. Do you ever, John, what do you think about that? Have you ever seen one a book that deals with kind of like the actual aspects of, so garde manger for those of you that aren't hip is uh, like the cold, the cold kitchen, right? So, you know, it's basically a station where um, you cold, know, cold prep would get yeah. done. What do you say? Salads. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Is that, do, you, do you say salads? Anyway. Cold apps. So yeah. Salads. Yeah. Cold okay. apps, salads. Uh, and in a major hotel, it would also be where like the buffets are done. But I don't know of any books that deal with the aspect that, that you're interested in. I mean, the, 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 do you, John? No, not really. I mean, just with that, I would think more, maybe it's better to like think about fermenting or, you know, marinating scraps of whatever in vinegar, you know, to make like an apple scrap vinegar or something like that. I don't know. That seems more like what I would be looking into. Right. I mean, the old school, I mean, like, you know, honestly, like in a big kitchen, like unless you have a lot of a particular scrap, which happens all the time, like a lot of like kind of scraps just get bulked for stock and stuff like that. Right. In terms of veg. Yeah. Um, but like it, classically, the you know old school in the '80s, the book to beat was uh, the Art of Garde Manger uh, by uh, Sonnenschmidt and uh, John Nicholas. That was kind of the book. But it's more of a like I'm looking at my edition, which is from the '80s. I have the fourth edition from the '80s, and yeah, it's all very precious buffet-looking kind of stuff. Kind of not what you're looking for, like roulades and whatnot. The CIA then came out with, uh, you know, the cooking school, not the, not the spy agency, came out with uh, a book that's gone through a bunch of editions, but I've never owned it. Um, I think called the the Art of a Garde Manger Kitchen or something like this. But if you are interested in buffets, which I've never I never owned it, but I'm sure it's it's good. Um, like the, the, it's already been a classic in the field, but Buffets and Receptions is a sick book put out by Virtue Press, V-I-R-T-U-E, Virtue Press, in the early 80s, I think, late 70s. Sick, sick, crazy. Uh, again, I would never recommend it. You cook a whale, but there is a recipe for cooking whale in there and specifically what kind of whale. Uh, the other one you might want to look at is a professional caterer series uh, by Denis Raphael. Uh, and the first four volumes are more, first three of the four volumes are more, and the last one's more hot side stuff. But again, ooh, all of these books now are on my desk and they're about to fall. Give me a second. Yeah. Just to give you an idea of the weight <laughs> of this uh, stack of books that I'm telling you about, it's this. Wow. Um, I was, yeah. yeah, I was wondering how you had all of these books at hand, but they're just yeah. piled around you. Well, I mean, the one good thing about recording this thing at home is that I can just go back to my to my bookshelf uh, and get stuff. The problem is, is that it's also hard to find stuff on on my on my bookshelf. Um, Nate wrote in uh, about uh, the combi Inova countertop combi oven. I have no experience with it. I think I mentioned that last week, but I'd you like to put that. out there. Uh, I'd like to put out there uh, anyone in the chat or who wants to write us who does have experience with this. Let us know what they think. Uh, and, and obviously we're happy to uh, test it out should someone want to ship us one to test. Um, 
All right, so we're we're running we're running low on time. I'm missing a couple of questions. Um, we, okay, so we'll get to week. we'll get we have a carbonation question. Should we do the carbonation question just so Nastasia doesn't have to hear it? Yes, that seems. All right. Go out on that one. All right, because Sergio Tum wrote in from Melbourne. He's a he is an Argentinian uh, person in Australia, but Nastasia has mentioned so much in this that I can't read it after she's already done the Booker goodbye on me. Uh, right, and then um, the other one is a question about safety. So from Mark. So I don't want to go into that one uh, half-assed, right? So because I don't want to give someone incorrect safety information that causes someone to, God forbid, get sick. So uh, from behind this wall on Instagram, hey, uh, hey, Dave, sorry uh, for this uh, out of the blue message. Uh, big fans of liquid intelligence have a question about applying your method for carbonation, for my carbonation rig to corny kegs as uh, we're just, we're getting the same results as we do in bottles. Any help much appreciated as we're looking to bulk up our operation into bottles. Uh, cheers, Alex. Okay, I'm not exactly sure what the question is, but I'm gonna assume the question is this. I'm currently kegging cocktails and then dispensing them out of a keg into a glass and not getting as many bubbles as I want because that system is stealing the bubbles from my cocktail and I want to put it into bottles, but those bottles are also stealing the bubbles and I'm not, it's not any better than the kegs. This John, do you think that's, yeah, is that the question? I think so. If it's not, he can write back in and I will get it up to you next week for the radio show. Right. Yep. Problem with, um, look, certain drinks want to be highly carbonated and certain drinks can be, have a small amount of carbonation and still be delicious. For instance, the Negroni can go anywhere from zero carbonation to full carbonation and be delicious at any point along the way. Uh, things like, you know, my gin and juice recipe, when they lose their carbonation, they lose their verve. So, um, you know, so like, I have never been a fan of, you know, uh, of myself having a carbonation rig for cocktails because it's I've never gotten one that does exactly what I uh, need to do. Uh, someone rung my doorbell, so we'll see whether I hear from my dogs. Um, that said, um, when you are carbonating in, in, when we put stuff in bottles, the way we got the best result was to carbonate in two liter bottles, um, like do forced carbonation, make sure that it's ice cold, triple carbonate, at least, at least triple carbonate, Chill your bottles, but don't over chill them. If your bottles are in the freezer, you're gonna lose all your bubbles because the minute you pour a carbonated drink into frozen glass, you'll get uh, ice crystals forming on the inside of the frozen glass, nightmare nucleation sites, it's gonna be a nightmare for you. So you, what you wanna do is fill them with ice water and then dump them out right before you fill them. Uh, that'll make sure there are no nucleation sites pour in all the way almost to the top, leave a very small eulage, which is that little space at the top of a wine bottle, leave a very small space. That space is critical for a carbonation and then, uh, and then cap it. Um, and that's kind of the best way that you're going to be able to, now, uh, people have said they've had luck with counter pressure fillers. I have not had luck with a counter pressure filler, but if you do, God bless you, but still you're gonna to wanna to keep your eulage as small as possible. And you're gonna to wanna to make sure your bottles are cold as long as they're not below freezing, 
all right, and then cap them immediately. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people and they're pouring the stuff out and they're sitting there and they're just letting it sit around, they're talking, they're chatting, they wanna do 50 bottles at once and then go cap 50 bottles, no. Pour like five bottles, cap, pour five bottles, cap, pour five bottles, cap, pour them all high and you should get a, a decent result. If what you're saying is, is that you can't get bottle carbonation with a carbonation cap to be any better than a, um, than a corny keg, that's a different problem. And there I would say it's probably a uh, clarification problem. It's not cold enough or you're not multiply carbonating, uh, like carbonating three times. I even once saw where someone was injecting CO2 onto the top of the bottle and then removing the pressure and then shaking it. No, it needs to be connected to pressure while you are shaking it. So uh, I answered either one of those two questions, but if those weren't the questions you wanted answered, then write on it again and I'll talk about it again after Nastasia does the Booker goodbye because otherwise I'll hear about it later because we all know Nastasia hates carbonation questions. True or false? Truth. And True. Chef Joanna is in the chat and points out that the CIA book, the Garbage, the Art and Craft of the Cold Kitchen, is cheap at thrift books. It is like seven or eight bucks. So cool. You know. And does she enjoy it? Uh, I think she had recommended it in the chat before you mentioned it, maybe. Unclear on timing. Oh. All right. Well, there you go. All right. Maybe uh, I should not pick up a copy. Don't pick up a copy. Don't pick up a copy. My, <laughs> my house is littered with books. Anyway, uh, John, uh, people should look out for a new copy of the newsletter soon, correct? Correct. All right. See you and, guys next and week. And uh, guest uh, Melissa Weller on next week. Oh, we have guest Ooh. Melissa Weller, uh, and uh, what, uh, I just read her book. What's the title of the book again, John? I can't remember. It's like sticky. What is it? Isn't it? Googling a good bake, the art and science of making perfect pastries, cakes, cookies, pies, and breads at home, a cookbook. Yeah, a good bake. And the cover of it, the reason I say sticky is the cover, she has like a like a, a baked good, like a bobka-y thing with like like a, like a the gooey, like that gooey kind of stuff poured over the top. And so anytime I think of it, I'm like sticky, sticky, <laughs> right? Makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, so she's on the show next week. So uh, if you have her book and you have a question, make sure to write it in early enough for John to get it to me. Uh, and we can talk about it because unfortunately, again, with the COVID, we can't have call-ins. So get your questions in on that. Uh, and uh, we'll uh, talk to you next week. Cooking Issues. Cooking Issues is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>